This morning's scripture is in Matthew chapter 26, verses 1 to 16. Starting in verse 1. When Jesus had finished saying all these things, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Now, when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon, the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head and as he reclined at table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then one of the 12, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. From that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. This is God's word. Thank you, David. Probably in light of the chronology of Matthew, many of you have lost sight of the fact that Matthew, for the last six and a half chapters, has been dealing with the Passion Week from that kind of Palm Sunday entry into Jerusalem up and through his crucifixion in chapter 27. So he spends an extended amount of time dealing with Uh, The context of this week, in fact, the events of this section happen in two different moments, but Matthew correlates them together. And there's a sweet story of this woman who does kind of a unique, and I think even for us, it sounds culturally strange, it was for them too. Uh, she, She does something special, and it shocks the world around her, and it brings about a level of shame and embarrassment for her. And yet Jesus seems very pleased. So I want to ask this question. What does it look like to do something good? And I mean like God thinks it's good. Good. I think if we ask most people in this world, do you think you're a good person? They would probably say yes. I remember a few weeks ago in a testimony, just a young man saying, I thought I was a good person until I read the Bible and realized all aren't good. That no one is actually good, and I wasn't good. And it was a surprise to him. And I think many people assume they're good. Maybe you've wondered. You have maybe non-Christian friends who you see, and they love their children, they love their spouse, they do good, and yet the Bible says they are not good. 
What makes it so that you can honestly say, as a Christian, you know that you are not intrinsically a good person? Why not? And did you not do good things when you were not saved? Can only saved people do good? This passage is about a precious moment in time in which we see a woman do an incredibly good thing. And with contrast, we see a man do an incredibly wicked thing. And Matthew, in editorial wisdom, brings them together. These events probably happen a few days apart. So John's account is really clear. In John chapter 12, it's the same event. This woman probably breaks the ointment over Jesus' head at this meal. It's probably Saturday, right before the triumphal entry. Uh, John makes it clear it's six days before the feast. They celebrated the the feast Thursday. Uh, That's when Jesus had that last supper. So I'm assuming um, Saturday or so before he comes in that triumphal entry. So if you're thinking in terms of year line, we're on Palm Sunday today, right? Last night this happened. Like just the coordinating of that passage. So the night before as Jesus is with his disciples, this lady does this thing. Somewhere during that week, Judas slinks off to the religious leaders and trades away the life of Jesus Christ for 30 pieces of silver. And Matthew brings them together that we could see the contrast between this good thing and this wretched thing. This sweet ministry and horrific betrayal. And I think there's more going on in this text than you might see at first blush. So what I would like to do is just kind of walk through the story as though it's merely a story and give you a little bit of the, the contour of the uh, interesting elements that I think are helpful for us to understand maybe the culture a little bit. When you look in 26.1, Jesus is letting his disciples know with abundant clarity. You know, he's not always speaking clearly. When you read the gospel, there are things that you struggle with and you know a lot more probably than the disciples do because you have the whole New Testament exegeting the life of Jesus. You know, opening it up for us so we see the big picture of what's really happening. So when Jesus is hinting at his death, you're not wondering. The disciples didn't know what was coming. So when he hints at his death, they might be thinking old age. They're thinking something else. They don't know what he's talking about. But by the time we get to the end here, look in 26, 1 and 2. When Jesus finished all these sayings, he said, you know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. I mean, that's real particular, right? Two days. This is what's going to happen. Betrayal followed by death. And that sets the context then for what happens with this lady breaking the ointment and why she's doing it. Or maybe the theological weight with which she does it. At the same point at which Jesus is saying he's going to die, Matthew lets us know in the private council of the religious leaders there's a plot and they're maneuvering to kill jesus and the only reason they're not bold and up front is for fear of people so the reason judas betrays jesus in this kind of way isn't because they didn't know where jesus was during the day he was with people during the day and what are they afraid of verse five not during the feast lest there be an uproar among the people So why didn't, when Jesus was preaching, why didn't they come and arrest him? They know how it's going to go down. 
This is not going to be a good moment for them. The world loves Jesus because he's popular, he's doing healings, he's doing incredible things, and he's kind of got the ear of all the people. He's got massive crowds around him who are wondering, is this God's servant? If they arrest him, take him away, and kill him in public like then, they know this is trouble. What they don't know is Jesus is sitting there preaching these huge crowds, and then he goes to a private house, and they don't know where he's at. They don't know where he's sleeping. They don't know where he's at when he's away from the crowds. That's why Judas' betrayal, when he takes them to that garden where Jesus is praying privately, no one's around. And that's why the arrest can happen without the people being in an uproar. Well, we go back a couple days probably in time, and Matthew lets us kind of look back and see an event that happens a few days before Jesus tells his disciples he's going to die. So look in verse 6 with me. Now when Jesus was at Bethany, it's a suburb of Jerusalem, think two miles away from city center. In the house of Simon the leper, a woman came to him, an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment. This alabaster flask probably had myrrh in it. Myrrh is taken from northern India. It is expressed through the the process of of crushing a plant and getting the oils from the plant and probably sealed in this kind of stone flask with a long neck. So in order to get the ointment out, you don't have a screw cap. You don't have a cork. You break the neck and you pour it out so it's kind of a one-use thing. So when she breaks the neck of this and pours it out, it's kind of all of it's gone. And so she has this opportunity, and she comes in to the house of Simon a leper. I think we can assume safely that he's a healed leper at this point. A woman comes up to Jesus with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment. Again, if you were to read Mark and John, they identify the cost as 300 denarii, which is about a year's salary. So Bakersfield, that's about 60K. So here's a $60,000 bottle of perfume like pure gold, right? Like this is incredibly valuable for a single woman, which apparently she is. She pours it out on his head as he was reclined at a table. So I just want you to stop. Picture this. Jesus is with his disciples, maybe, maybe a few others. The Bible indicates that Lazarus and Martha were also present. And so we probably don't have merely 13 men. We probably have a few more. The men are, are, are not seated, If you remember the ancient Near Eastern custom, you lay at the table. And so these men are kind of reclined, like up on on a shoulder in a circle around this eating area. And in comes a woman, not to serve food, but to pour out perfume on Jesus' head. And so she breaks the bottle in front of all of these men present. I'm already anxious just telling you the story. Can you imagine doing this? I mean, think about going into a corporate business meeting, lunch meeting, going to the CEO of the company, breaking a bottle of perfume and pouring on his head. Like, does that make any sense to you that that would happen? Because that's what's going on. Now, she's known, so it's not like she's a total stranger, but it'd be like the wife of one of the guys who works janitorial coming in and doing this to the CEO. And she takes this bottle of perfume, and it's probably a thick, oily substance, and pours it into his hair. Now, I know my wife would probably be like, get your hands off my husband. 
right? Because there is a level of closeness here. Like, do any of you want someone putting oil into your husband's head? It just, it feels very intimate almost. And in this society, she's pushing limits. And it doesn't go unnoticed. I, I can only imagine what her thoughts are beforehand. The internal debate. I want to do something special. I'm not a preacher. I can't cook. What do I do for him? Should I do this? Dad gave me this for a dowry. And Dad's gone. Like, this is the most valuable thing I have. This is like my life savings. Jesus is worth it. Well, how do I do this? Do I do it in front of all these people? I don't know when else I could do it. If it's not in front of these people, it's going to be in front of crowds out in public. I'm certainly not going to sneak to his bedchamber at night and do this. I guess I got to do it now. You imagine the first steps into the room? As she walks into the room, and all the men look over at her to see if she has any food, and she doesn't, and she's got a weird bottle. And they just look at her like wondering what's going on here. Well, maybe she's just going to give this to Jesus. She walks in and she's about to give it to Jesus and then she breaks it. It's like, what? And then she starts pouring it on his head. It's like, whoa, you've overstepped your lady. Like, we like you and all, but this is too much. This is what's going on. Look again in the text. Verse 8. When the disciples saw it, they were indignant. I don't think that surprised her. I think part of the courage she expresses here is that she knows she's entering into a culturally unacceptable moment for the sake of doing something for Jesus. And she breaks this ointment, pours it on his head, and then gets scolded publicly by everyone else in the boardroom except the CEO. That'd be hard. I, I know I don't come across as a shy person, but I'm embarrassed for her just reading the story. Like, it's hard for me to put myself in her shoes and not just feel the shame. Like, to feel that moment when you have Peter look at you like, what are you, seriously? Now? You've got to be kidding me. You should not be doing that. And it's not like just one disciple, it's plural. The disciples... So she does this. Jesus, aware of the indignation, aware that they're whispering to themselves. Remember, like, well, when you look at the text, it says Jesus, aware of this, it indicates they didn't hear it. That's whispers. It's like make it worse, right? Like, happening around the table, they're all looking with angry faces at her, like, what are you doing? And Jesus stops them and says, why are you troubling this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. You always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. That seems like a troubling sentence, doesn't it? I mean, Jesus is kind of saying, don't worry about the poor. That feels very unchristian. He continues on. She has done a beautiful thing. Why? Verse 12, in pouring out the ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Again, I think Matthew in his work is showing us that a discerning Listener to Jesus knows he's going to die. And she has done this precious thing 
in advance of his death. You know, Jesus was never anointed with oil after his death. You remember on the morning we celebrate the resurrection? These ladies were coming in order to do this. Why don't you just consider that for a moment? One person anointed Jesus. Not his mother. Not those ladies who rose up early on that Sunday morning to go and do it. Only one person cared for his body. Maybe she's a really good listener. Maybe she was theologically richer than the disciples, and she understood he was going to die. The text doesn't tell us all that she was thinking, just merely Jesus' defense. She cared for him, anoints his body for burial. And then Jesus gives this point. Wherever the gospel is proclaimed, in the whole world, what she has done for me be told in memory of her. She is honored in all of Christian history. For 2,000 years, there are three gospel accounts. Matthew, Mark, and John all speak of this woman's gift to Jesus. The world is fighting for honor. Almost every time a president is nearing the end of his term, the news and the media start talking about his legacy, how he's going to be remembered. Every president will spend millions of dollars. They call them a library. They're shrines. I mean, if anyone's gone to the Reagan Library, who gets honored there? Not Jimmy Carter. It's Ronald Reagan, and it's not a whole bunch of books. They have Air Force One there for you, but it's Ronald Reagan's Air Force One. Like, it's about honoring a man. Does anyone think that in 2,000 years that library is going to exist? The library that's not a library. The memorial, the shrine to Reagan. I can't imagine in 2,000 years anyone's going to go to that place if it still is standing. But it won't be. For 2,000 years, gospel preachers in languages across the globe have spoken of a woman and her precious deed to honor her Savior. Now, I do not think Matthew is merely putting the story in his manuscript that you and I would be able to say, wow, look at an amazing woman. I think Matthew is doing this for a couple reasons. I think he's doing one to help us to understand that God's people act a certain way. I think also that we might learn from Judas' example. It is not accidental that Judas is brought up because the contrast is stark, isn't it? In one moment, we have this lady giving away a full year of money. All that you would make in a normal year, she gives away. And on the other hand, we have Judas, who for 30 pieces of silver betrays the Lord. 30 pieces of silver is about three months' salary. So for about one quarter of the value of what she gave away in a moment, he betrays Christ forever. There's a little bit of historical context to Judas' betrayal. Let me go ahead and read that section in the text with you. Verse 14. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. You're going to wonder why 30. 
If you were to turn back to Exodus 21, you don't need to, but you're, you might want to write it down. If you want to turn there, you're welcome to. Uh, there's in the middle of the Old Testament law a price point given if a slave gets killed. And, and the thought is this. If, if because of your negligence, your cow gets out and kills a slave, you have to pay the slave owner back for your negligent care of your animal. Guess what the price is? So this is the minimum line, whether it's a male or female slave, this is what you must pay. Anyone guess? It's 30 pieces of silver. I want you to think of the devaluation of a human life when that's all they'll give for Jesus. It's a liability claim, and it's the lowest standard price for a person, a slave. What's interesting is Zechariah and Zechariah 11 also talks about this price point. Zechariah is, is working through prophetic stuff. And Zechariah is a little bit weird, not quite as bad as Ezekiel, but when you read these Old Testament prophets, you do wonder. Like, God did not pick normal humans. And he didn't speak normally because he's getting Israel's attention. And, and in the work with Israel... There's this shepherd and Israel being the sheep. They're in conflict with one another. And so in this account, the shepherd breaks his contract to care for the sheep because, because it's so troubled, the relationship between the shepherd and the shepherds of Israel and the sheep of Israel. So the shepherd breaks his shepherding staff, quits shepherding, and says, pay me what you think I'm worth. And the people of Israel say you're worth 30 pieces of silver. It's an insulting amount. It's the rejection of the shepherd. And they're to take that money and give it to the potter in the temple. I want to read for you Matthew 27, verse 3. If you just look over that text. Then Judas, his betrayer, seeing that Jesus had been condemned, was full of remorse. And return the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. I have sinned by betraying innocent blood, he said. What is that to us, they said. See to it yourself. So he threw the silver into the sanctuary and departed. Then he went and hanged himself. And the chief priest took the silver and said, It's not lawful to put it into the temple treasury since it's blood money. So they conferred together and bought the potter's field with it as his burial place for foreigners. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then what was spoken to the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. They took the 30 pieces of silver, the price of him who was, whose price was set by the Israelites. Both Jeremiah and Zechariah speak to that, that buying that potter's field. That's why Jeremiah is mentioned there. But when you look at this, this is that moment where Israel pays the shepherd to not be their shepherd and rejects him. And with an insulting amount, they give him 30 pieces of silver to say, we're done with you. It's exactly what Judas did, isn't it? It's exactly what the chief priests did. How much did it take for them? What was the price to kill the shepherd? I mean, I find it amazing that these chief priests, these are supposedly godly men, right? They're priests. 
they don't want to touch the money because it's blood money. You talk about someone who's not self-aware. Like, hey, you know, we don't want that to corrupt the temple. That we are priests over doing our priestly work all through this holiday. So we don't want to touch the blood money. Well, whose blood? Jesus. Who's killing him? Us. But we don't want to defile it with the money. Like, how, how do you not see? You're a murderer. And you're worried about the money you paid for the murder, not the fact that blood is on your hands. But Judas sees it. Judas sees that, that Jesus was betrayed for just a little amount of money. A shameful devaluation and lack of concern for who he is. But again, if we're putting this kind of in dollar amounts, and a year is $60,000 for $15,000, he betrayed a man to his death. Not just a man, the king of glory, Jesus Christ. So what are we to do with these texts? Why does Matthew call us to recognize what's going on here? Well, if we're just to contrast these just for a second, as we kind of summarize the, the two givers, or a giver and a taker, Mary gives G Jesus something that's deeply sacrificial, at deep financial cost, with lots of shame. I mean, if I just pushed pause and talked about shame, how many times have you not rebuked, encouraged someone, or shared the gospel with someone because you were worried about how you would look? Like, shame is a motivator. So when I say she walked through shame in order to give this gift, I think we ought to be somewhat sympathetic to how hard that really is. How difficult it is to enter into and do right in the middle of shame. She personally lost much. She gave something that was theologically thoughtful. It was doctrinally good, right? The truth was Jesus was going to die. And somehow she is able to coordinate both activity and theology to a good, sweet unity. Mark says she has done what she could. I do think sometimes we sit on the sidelines wishing we could do what someone else can do. We wish we could speak like those who are really good speakers. We wish we had a fun personality that could just lift people up around us like someone else who has a really good, fun, encouraging personality. We wish we had more time to study. We wish we had something that we don't have. Man, I would really be hospitable if I just had a bigger house. Would you? Mark says she's done what she could. What did she have? She had a $60,000 bottle of perfume. She gave it all to Jesus. But can I just suggest to you that there is a theological center to this text? that could have been missed in the reading. I want you to come to verse 10 with me. I want you to notice, see if you can find with me why she did this. Jesus, aware, that was aware of the indignation, the anger of the disciples, said this to them. Why do you trouble the woman? 
for she has done a beautiful thing. What does it say? To me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring out this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. What's the theological center of this woman's activity? She's doing it for the Lord. This is all about Jesus for her. It's not about the perfume. It's not about the cost. It's not about the shame. What has centered her life is I will give Jesus what he should have. It doesn't matter what it costs me. It doesn't matter what others think. Jesus will have what he should have. He will have all of it or all of me or all of whatever because Jesus is what matters to this woman. When you look at the contrast, when you come to John 12, John 12 gives us a glimpse into Judas's mind. Do you know why he said, because he's one of the ones that said this. Do you know why he said this? Look with me in John 12 real quickly. I don't want you to miss this. Because giving to the poor is a good thing, right? You ever give to the poor? You should. Jesus is not against poor people. Look in chapter 12, verse 5 of John's gospel. Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Sounds really similar, doesn't it? Verse 6, he said this. Who's the he? Go back to verse 4. It's Judas Iscariot. He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. Having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Why did Judas say he was going to give it to the poor? Because if he went and sold this for 300 denarii, who gets to hold the money? Judas holds the money. And when you're giving money out to poor people, no one's taking accounting. And Judas had every intention of getting something for himself. He couldn't care less about poor people. Now, now Jesus' statement isn't just condemning Judas for that theme. He's actually making a point to the apostles. And this may sound a little bit cliche or really silly. Jesus is more important than poor people. And he is unashamed to say that. Like what she did, if if we're going to take the disciples at face value, Jesus is not ashamed to say, if you have a choice between serving me or serving people, you should serve me. I am the center, Jesus says. It's actually a, a massive statement of dignity that Jesus claims. I am worth serving over and against any other human on this planet, even those in desperate need, because I am Jesus, the King of kings, Lord of lords, and deserve all glory and honor. And so when this woman does this and they say, hey, shouldn't we have worshipped and served the creature? Jesus' answer is, no! She was right. She is right on. And I just want to suggest to you that not only was Judas dead wrong, but Jesus doesn't go after Judas. He goes after all the apostles for not honoring him the way that she does. Listen, sometimes good is the enemy of God. Does that make sense? Sometimes things God has called you to as good things 
can grow and call you in terms of time and attention away from God himself. Jesus is not saying don't give to poor people. Jesus is saying don't divert what is mine to anyone. Don't give to any creature what should be given to the creator. And when someone in deep sacrifice and devotion worships the creator, maybe all men who don't love the creator will think it's shameful. I mean, can we just be a little bit self-aware now and suggest that some of you deeply give to this church and get nothing tangible in return? Some of you at least give your Sunday mornings to hearing a guy talk about a book that was written 2,000 years ago. Talk about a Savior who was written about 2,000 years ago. From a secular point of view, that's nuts. Like, why do you find it interesting? You've read it. You know what's happening. Why, why do we devote our time and our energy and our treasures to this thing? Because we recognize intuitively as believers that this woman, Mary, was right on it. That Jesus deserves everything he can get from us. That Jesus is worth giving your whole life to. And that the question before us is not how much do we give Jesus, but what does Jesus want because he gets all of what he wants, right? All of us. Let me just see if I can connect this to some like rubber meets the road types of thoughts. I think Mark, excuse me, Matthew, in some ways is defending some claims he's made. Jesus has just said, as much as you give a cup of cold water or clothes or visit me in prison, it's like you've done it to, to me. If we were to go back, still same week, Jesus is asked, what is the greatest commandment? What's the greatest commandment? To love God with all of your heart, your soul, and your mind. To love God more than anything and everyone. To love God beyond all things. What does that look like? Well, for Mary, breaking a bottle of perfume and giving it all to Jesus. And maybe the pragmatist in us says, well, we could have sent a lot of missionaries out with $60,000. Man, we could have really put in a good, solid down payment on a building with $60,000. Man, my retirement funds could have really been helped, and then I'd be free in time to serve the church if I just had $60,000 more. We can rationalize a better strategic plan for doing life and miss it all. We can rationalize doing good rather than loving God. And in so doing, we actually don't love God. I think one of the calls in wisdom and discipleship that is following Christ is knowing what is truly an expression of love and devotion to Christ. And what is merely us navigating life for things we want and slapping a Christian sticker on it and calling it good. I want to take you to Colossians as I wrap up kind of this talk. So I want to defend it theologically and make a point with Judas here. So if you have not read the book of Colossians recently, I was trying to, my mind, just consider ways in which the New Testament calls us to put Christ high before us. 
to center our love and our devotion on Christ. And Colossians sprang to mind, and Ephesians would have probably been just as simple to use, but let me just use a couple verses in Colossians to, to show you this theme rising from this text. I want you to go to Colossians 1, 18 and 19. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that, what is that next little preposition there? In everything. He might be preeminent. Preeminent is a cooler way of saying first place. Notice it doesn't say over everything. In everything, he might be first. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things. So he's reconciling to himself all things. All things are going to be united under the kingship of Christ. All things are going to be obedient to his kingly rule. All things are going to give him glory. All things are going to be under his royal rule. All things reconciled to him. Whether on earth, in heaven. Well, that makes sense. All the heaven loves him already. Making peace by the blood of his cross. I think the point is, even more broadly, those things under the earth are also submissive to Christ. I want you to come with me to chapter 3. Look in verse 17. He ends this discussion in which he calls us to be radically different than is natural. To get rid of certain behaviors, to put on certain behaviors, to get rid of certain attitudes and to buy into certain attitudes. So things like humility, meekness, patience are called for. Getting rid of anger, sexual immorality, slander. Look at verse 17, he kind of wraps it up. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. If you just skip down, you'll see what that means for a slave in verse 23. Whatever you do, work heartily. So, hey, you bondservant, when you serve your master, do it with your whole heart. So when you're in the 11th hour of a long day of labor, how hard are you going to be working? With your whole heart. Why? As what? It's for the Lord. Why are we doing this for the Lord? Well, because you're not doing it for men. Because you know that from the Lord you'll receive an inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. So what is, what is Colossians doing for us? It's explaining how we should live life. And it, and it, it talks about marriage. It talks about children. It talks about being a master over slaves. It talks about being a wife. It talks about how to engage within church life. But all of it comes back to the very beginning of the chapter when it says, in everything Christ has first place. We go back to Matthew. What was happening in that room? Who in that room had Christ first? The woman who was embarrassed, who probably nervously walked into the room, probably, in all likelihood, gave away her marriage dowry to Jesus. Who had the theological at least 
awareness, to recognize she was giving to Jesus something that indicated he needed and could use this ointment for his burial. Because Jesus had first place. The New Testament tells us we need to have Jesus first place. So I asked the question at the beginning, what is the difference between good from an unbeliever and good from a believer? This is it. Do you do what you do for the sake of Jesus? Because it reshapes everything. Do you love your precious new little baby because that precious baby is yours? Because you just have those motherly instincts? Because you adore your child? Because they're your child? Or do you also and overwhelmingly love that baby because that baby has been granted to you by Christ and you serve Christ by serving, caring, and loving that child? It transforms the way you parent. Because if you parent that child for Christ's sake, your goal is to lead that child to the Savior that that child might commune with the Lord Almighty and not be your trophy. That child is not for you, but for the Lord. When you make decisions about spending money and giving money away, whether you give it to the church or you give it to people who are poor, what drives your over, like, like your planning on finances and your budget should be this question. Is Christ the center in my money? Almost annually, I'll get the question. So how much pastor should a Christian give? Here's my answer. Christ should be first place. Now give. What does that look like? I don't know how much. I don't know how much you have. I don't know how much extra you have. For this woman, the right thing for her was some incredible deep sacrifice. I don't think the point of this is y'all need to give a year's salary. I'm not going to stop you if you do, but I don't think that's the point of the text. The point of the text is she loved Jesus. Often the point of the question is, how much do I have to give? Let me just replay that with my wife and me. Mark, how much do I need to love you? I don't even know how to answer the question. Like, need to love me? I don't know. Do you have a problem with that? Like, you, like, it's just the wrong question. So when my wife serves our home as an act of love for me, that's what she should do, but she should do it, I mean, in the context of the sermon especially, for Christ. Right? The question isn't how much do I need to love my kids. The question is how. Will you love them for Christ's sake? How do you spend your time? How much time do you need to spend in church? How much time do you need to spend with God's people? How, how do you need to process through living in a world that uses all sorts of trashy language and vulgar conversations. What is right for a Christian in relation to that? It begins with this thought. Would you give all of that up for Jesus? Is he your center? Do you love him most? Or you're worried about what your coworkers think of you if you don't have some salty language. 
Like if, if you're really angry and you're like, man, really? Wow. Like, man, keep it, keep it PG-13. Yeah, like sometimes like we feel like we need to show people certain elements of our character just so they'll approve of us. And in that moment, Jesus isn't center. The discipline of Bible reading is not about reading your Bible every 24-hour cycle. It's about coming and learning from Jesus that you might commune with him and know him. In this passage, I think in starkest, boldest characterization, not only does Mary love Jesus deeply, sacrificially, over the cost of shame and embarrassment in a challenging and awkward social setting that made her look weird. But Judas devalued Jesus. I think that point is made strong in that 30 pieces of silver lying throughout all of prophecy. This is the price of Israel's rejection of their shepherd. It is the cost of a minimalistic slave in the Old Testament when negligence is on the line. You ask, well, what could go wrong if I don't value Jesus like I should? And God tells you, look at Judas. If you don't love the son, your compass is so messed up, you could be him. Did Judas hate Jesus? You come to chapter 27, he's broken. But he doesn't understand Jesus at all. He doesn't love Jesus at all, or he never would have committed suicide. He doesn't understand the mercy of Jesus, otherwise he would have pled for it and been saved. He doesn't understand the grace that Jesus offers. Jesus does not merely want people who don't know him, but give him everything. Jesus wants people to love him because they know who he is. He is the glorious, good, merciful, loving, gentle Savior. He is the good King. Judas doesn't see any of that. Judas' problem isn't merely that he's greedy. It's that he doesn't understand the treasure of Christ. Is giving away $60,000 too much to give Jesus? Matthew screams to us it's not even enough. Your question this morning should be, is my life in pursuit of and in deep affection and absolute loyalty of the one who deserves all of my soul, Jesus? And if not, it's not merely by muscling that you give Jesus more. It's by seeing how good he is. Forgive this bad analogy. One of many, I'm sure. But when you go to a car salesman, they don't just merely press on you with manipulation. They'll tell you how good the car is. They'll tell you all of its features. And how, how happy you will be if you own that car. And it works as though you will have a better home life if you just drive a Ford. And we actually, like our souls, kind of believe the dumb lies. How much more? And we don't need to sell Jesus. That's why it's a bad analogy. But if you could see with a theological clarity how good he is, how sweet it is to walk with him, 
how secure he is to trust, how gentle he is when we do wrong, the mercy and faithfulness with which he deals with your sin, the security you have eternally from physical death, from cancers, from a marriage that's difficult. If you could see just the grace and the security with which he holds you tight, why would you not love him with your whole being? If you love Jesus less than you should, don't just think, I should love him more. Recognize that the problem is you don't yet know him like you should. You're the 16-year-old girl who's going to the car lot that just wants a pretty car. You don't understand how good a good car is. You don't understand what a good engine and a good steering system and a good air conditioning means in Bakersfield. You just want it to be cute. And all your friends go like, oh, it's cute. And you're saying, I just should love it more. And theologically, you're dry. Your worship is hard. It's the discipline, but it's not rich. You come to church because you should. Or maybe you come to church because it makes you feel good. It's not an act of devotional love for your Savior. If your devotion is shallow, if your love is cool, if your heart is not devoted to the Lord, get to know him better. Spend some time. Start in Matthew 1. We've only been in Matthew for about four years. And start reading. And just have have this little discipline. When you see something important or sweet about Jesus, stop and praise and then pray. And then start reading again. And when you get done with the Gospel of John, tell me you don't love Jesus more. Just do that simple discipline. Some of you are in difficult situations. You have a miserable job. Some of you are financially hurting. Some of you have kids that exhaust your patience by 6 a.m. What gets you through those hard moments is not discipline, but a devotion to the Lord. That's what gets you through the hard moments. It's walking with the Lord. Some of you don't know who Jesus is. So I'm just going to tell you that you're probably not someone who betrayed Jesus to be murdered to death. And Judas could have gotten saved. And instead, I think Judas is probably burning in hell forever, condemned. The son of perdition. If Jesus could have and would have saved this man because of his incredible mercy, why do you still resist him? Why, like Judas, do you feel a little bit of guilt? A little bit of like, oh, I don't like who I am when I look in the mirror and I'm honest. But like Judas, rather than coming to Jesus and running to him and saying, please forgive me, this is me, my fault, I betrayed you. Judas didn't do that. Instead, privately, he slinked away, covered in guilt, sin, and self-hatred, and killed himself rather than coming for mercy. Because he didn't know who Jesus is. Listen, if you don't know who Jesus is, he says this to every sinner. 
come. And you'll be forgiven. Come. And you'll have eternal life. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He doesn't merely says come. He says, come to me alone because there is no other. You are never good enough until you have Christ. And then only because he is good is there enough good in you to be saved. Come to Jesus. Our church is filled with men and women who constantly remind me I need to love Jesus like them because they are so rich in the faith and love our Savior so sweetly. This lady is another example of a flawed and broken sinner who reminds us how deeply we should love our Lord. Do you love Jesus enough? All of us immediately go, not enough. So would you just pray as I close in prayer and ask the Lord to strengthen your affection and your devotion to him. If you don't know the Lord, if you're, if you're like Judas and you feel guilty, you feel the shame, but you don't know, you're not forgiven and you're not saved, this is that moment where Jesus is reaching his hand out to you, spiritually speaking, and saying, come. Come and be forgiven. Come into the kingdom. Be saved from your sin. Be forgiven. Trust in my death for your wicked sin and be forgiven because I was raised to life and you can experience life eternally if you trust in me. Jesus, hand is out to you this morning. Don't reject the king. Come when he calls. I'm going to give you a couple moments of quietness. Would you just pray and ask the Lord to help you to love him, be fully devoted to him? Father in heaven, thank you so much for your precious son. Thank you for the work of the church, the lives of these precious church family members who love your son. Lord, we recognize that there is so much in our hearts that is cluttered with self-love, with affections for hobbies and interests that don't honor the son with distractions that keep us from devoting ourselves to him. Lord, I pray that even a scripture passage like this will remind us that Jesus is worth everything, that we should give ourselves fully to him. And as your servant in Colossians has written, that in everything he might have first place. Lord, I ask that you would help our church to set aside in our hearts first place in our marriages in our schooling, in our athletics, in our workplaces, over our grandchildren and in our relationship with them so that in every one of these elements of life, any one of these relationships, in any one of these moments, Christ could say with joy that he is our first place as we serve, as we live, as we walk in relationship with these people you've put us into lives and workplaces with. Lord, thank you for your church. I ask that even this morning you would be calling people to Jesus Christ through the ministry of your word. He is good and he is king. Whether we acknowledge him or not, he is king. 
So Lord, I pray this morning you would ask through the sweetness of your spirit and through the power of his compelling grace, sinners to come and believe in your son. Lord, I also ask that you would strengthen those among us this morning, that this week will walk in this way, that they might find much joy, that you would give them the delight and the joys of their heart as they follow Jesus with everything, that there might be rich reward in this life and greater reward in the life to come for those who follow after Christ. Lord, sanctify your church, we pray. Amen.